Hello and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This week I learned why we sleepwalk. Now, the vast majority of us don't. Some research puts it at just 4% of the population with this affliction. But those numbers are reportedly on the rise due to use of sleep aids like Ambien. Sleepwalking, for the most part, is harmless, or if anything, inconvenient. But occasionally, it can be dangerous. There are a few extreme examples, like the time an English teen jumped out of her bedroom window, or the Canadian who actually got in his car, drove to his mother-in-law's house, and killed her. He and his mother-in-law had a totally amicable relationship. So what is going on here? Well, sleepwalkers, or somnambulists as they're called, are in an irrational state. What's happening inside the brain is that the primitive part, the part of the brain involved in emotional response and complex motor, well, it stays in an active state. Meanwhile, the parts of your brain that control rationality and memory are dormant and therefore unable to carry out their usual tasks. Basically, the rational part of our brain is in a sleep-like state, so it can't control those more animalistic behaviors of ours, like the fight-or-flight instinct our brains have had since the dawn of evolution. But the why part of this question may be the more interesting one. Why would our brains have this sleep-wake limbo function instead of just productively doing one or the other? Researchers think the answer can be found in our pre-human ancestors. There was a time when getting a good night's rest would have been downright dangerous. When you're sleeping out in the wild, you basically have to sleep with one eye open. Previous research has found that when we sleep in a new place, one hemisphere of our brain remains more active than the other, essentially maintaining a vigilant mode should anything go bump in the night. And actually, across the board, our fight-or-flight systems have a very low threshold for arousal. Basically, throughout the night, a part of our brain is monitoring the situation, on the lookout, if you will, for danger. If something doesn't seem right, the brain will be triggered into arousal. This is what's called an adaptive trait, and it's incredibly beneficial for our survival. Think about it. If you're asleep and something goes wrong and you just need to get out fast, it's incredibly helpful to have your motor system always at the ready. If you're in danger, it doesn't really help to have your rationality trying to talk you out of immediate mobility. But for sleepwalkers, this adaptive system has gone awry. For non-sleepwalkers, that arousal that happens to alert the sleeping person, well, it's a really small one. You know, it might knock you out of a deep sleep, but not push you right out of bed. But for sleepwalkers, this arousal trigger is a massive one, a full-blown get-up-and-go reaction. What's interesting is that sleepwalking is a uniquely human phenomenon which means that somewhere along evolution's path, the selection pressure for this malfunctioning trait outweighed the cost, which is why it still exists. This week I learned that a spinach leaf can become a working human heart muscle. Scientists have been working on creating artificial hearts in the lab for a while now, and they've had some successes. 
Using a 3D printer, they've been able to create some large-scale human tissue, the kind that would replace damaged tissue in a patient who's had a heart attack. But what's been missing from this tissue engineering is the delicate matter of a vascular system, a way to move blood and oxygen through the human tissue and keep it alive. That is, after all, why we have veins. The techniques that have so far been used in building large-scale human tissue haven't been able to replicate that tiny vascular network that is so crucial. Without that delicate blood transport system, tissue dies. But that's where the spinach leaf comes in. If you've ever looked closely at a leaf, you will have noticed that it has its own vascular network. On a tree, those veins pump water and nutrients out to the leaf cells. But in the hands of scientists, those plant veins have successfully replicated the way blood moves through human tissue. Scientists at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts first stripped spinach leaves of their plant cells so that what was left were translucent frames made of cellulose. And cellulose is something we humans already use. It's a non-harmful living tissue that's in surgical implants, wound healing, and other regenerative medical applications. So then, scientists bathe the remaining plant frame in live human cells. The human tissue then grew onto the spinach scaffolding and surrounded the tiny veins. Once they had transformed the spinach into a tiny heart, scientists sent fluids through its veins to show that blood cells can flow through the system. The cool thing with plant leaves is that they come in all shapes and sizes, so they could potentially replace damaged human tissue, big and small. For heart attack patients who are given replacement tissue, the modified leaves would deliver oxygen to the area and help generate new, healthy heart matter. And if spinach hearts weren't really doing it for you, scientists say these same methods could be used with different types of plants to repair a variety of tissues in the body. Like one day, doctors could heal a broken bone with wood. This week I learned that not so long ago, married women didn't have their own passports. Instead, they were listed as anonymous add-ons to their husbands, as in Mr. John Doe and wife. Now, it wasn't as though the U.S. government was using policy to prevent women from traveling abroad. In fact, single women could apply for and were issued their own passports in their own name. But married women were trapped in the archaic social norms of the time. In the early 20th century, they weren't really allowed to travel outside the country without their husbands. And just generally, a married woman's public identity was tied to her husband's. While it wasn't necessarily illegal to keep your maiden name in the 19th and into the 20th centuries, it was pretty much unheard of, and women who tried often ran into legal issues. Employers could refuse to comply, or women wouldn't be able to vote, or they wouldn't get passport approval. But by the early 20th century, there had been a civil rights fight simmering over a woman's right to choose her name. It was a suffragette named Lucy Stone who first started the movement back in the 1850s. She married in 1855 and refused to take her husband's name. When she tried to vote in her town's 1879 school board elections, she wasn't allowed to because of the name she was using. 
The movement picked up traction again in the 1920s, when a woman named Ruth Hale applied for a passport under her maiden name. She was set to travel to France for work as a war correspondent, but her request was denied. And so began Ruth's lifelong crusade to use her maiden name on legal documents. First, she went back and forth with the State Department several times. On one passport application, she even included an affidavit supporting her case to use her maiden name, arguing that she is literally known by no other name but Ruth Hale. The government responded by sending her a new passport under the name, quote, Mrs. Haywood Braun, otherwise known as Ruth Hale, end quote. Ruth did not take this as a victory, and inspired by Lucy Stone's work, Ruth co-founded the Lucy Stone League, which was dedicated to protecting a woman's right to her maiden name. Passports were their prime target. After all, they were the ultimate form of identification at the time, and they believed that if the State Department recognized a married woman's birth name as her legal name, then all government bodies would follow suit. So, in 1925, the Lucy Stoners found a successful guinea pig in Doris E. Fleischmann. Fleischmann was a married press agent who did not take her husband's name. When she applied for her first passport, the State Department used their workaround, and Doris received a document issued to, quote, Doris Fleischmann Bernays, professionally known as Doris E. Fleischmann, end quote. With the help of the Lucy Stoners, Doris persisted. In her next application, she included a note that put the State Department on the spot. She rightfully pointed out that a passport establishes identity, and to go by a name that wasn't hers would be to travel under a false name. The press got wind of her application, and the attention seemed to be the pressure the State Department needed. In June of 1925, Doris got her passport with her own name. And this would be the first legal document issued by a federal agency to a woman under the name she preferred. It was also the first U.S. passport issued to a married woman that didn't designate her as the wife of her husband. It was more than a decade later, in 1937, that the State Department finally made it a matter of course that it was the woman's right to travel under the name of her choice. This week I learned emojis are not a universal language. Those yellow, round-faced, food, animal characters, what have you, first emerged in Japan in the 1990s. They were a fun, quick way for people to communicate through visual information and still are today. But the meaning of the seemingly straightforward emojis changes depending on where you are. Quartz.com outlines one very striking difference between the way the Chinese read the happy-faced emoji and the way, you know, Americans might. That wide-eyed, smiley-face emoji may mean happiness on the surface, but Chinese users take it to be hostile. Just look at the eyes. Those eyes are staring wide open right at you. If you were genuinely happy, your eye muscles would move up near the corners. So, instead of a genuine smile, this guy's grin is mocking and even obnoxious. It's a pretty good argument, actually. Worse yet, if you use the smiley face with a waving hand, you're basically saying, I despise you, please go away. All of which is to say, language is a nuanced beast. And if you don't want to offend anyone while visiting a new place, check in with the locals and find out what's verboten. 
And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as a thank you for listening to this episode, we at The Week would like to offer you four totally free, non-commitment issues of The Week magazine. To get those, visit theweek.com slash for free. I'm Lauren Hansen, and thanks so much for listening. Thank you.